Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report's weekly technology report. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is Mark Montgomery, a retired United States Navy Rear Admiral who served as the Director of Indo-Pacific Command's Operations. He is now the Senior Director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. And the uh, he continues to be the Executive Director of the Cyber Solarium 2.0 Project. Uh, Mark, thanks so very much for joining us. It's been too long since you've uh, graced our airwaves. Thank you for having me, Fago. Uh, it's uh, always uh, a pleasure. A uh, quick word from our sponsors. Our daily uh, podcast is sponsored by Bell. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval uh, coverage. Uh, Mark, uh, the president uh, last week uh, or the week before last issued his uh, executive order on artificial intelligence designed to get the government uh, joined up on an important uh, technology uh, with a focus to be on safety uh, and transparency and all of the things that we talk about uh, when it comes to artificial intelligence. Some maintain it's a good start. Others maintain the EO kind of misses the point, uh, given where the technology is going and how it's likely to be used. From your standpoint, uh, what's what's your sort of take on uh, the EO and whether it's going to accomplish what it is we need it to accomplish as a nation, given how fast AI technology is moving. So thanks, uh, Vago. It is an important executive order. And, you know, to their credit, it was done pretty rapidly by the administration, you know, as executive orders go. And I think, you know, it's a good starting point in the in the kind of the government's almost race to set rules and regulations for the use of AI technologies, you know, first here at home and hopefully working with partners abroad. It's you know a really vast um, executive order in its scope, and it really pushes a lot of different whole of government efforts. But uh, you know, so that's a good. You know, right off the bat, I'd say one of the challenging things is executive orders never come with cash attached. Um, so I'm going to mention a lot of places where you know um, federal agencies are directed to do something, or hopefully we, they can work with the private sector to do something. But there's no actual money here, and what worries me is. You know, we're already, you know, they're, they're already writing up the fiscal year 2025 budget right now. You know, it's in review. So the idea that this executive order's um, priorities were necessary, even if there's certainly not the 2024 budget being debated on the Hill. And they're not the 2025 budget, I think, that was just, you know, just turned into OMB by most agencies. So I'm a little worried that there's going to be a say-do mismatch if, if we're not careful. But but let's be clear that it, the, the EO lays out the predicate of the problem. And, and the problem is, you know, getting an understanding of, you know, um, you, 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 how we can properly red team AI um, testing, um, how we can ensure that, you know, we understand or getting good compliance and reporting from the generational AI companies, um, you know, of, uh, of how their technology is evolving. Uh, there's some very good discussions in there about the impact of AI on certain areas of the workforce in the United mm-hmm. States. So I think that's good. There's a couple pilot programs for DHS and DOD on how uh, the executive branch is going to use, how the federal government's going to use AI. Um, and, and then there's direction in there that says, look, for those of you who regulate critical infrastructures, understand how you need to adjust that for the, uh, you know, the existence, the development of, of generative AI um, tools. 
Um, now, look, again, that again, I caveat a second problem here, which is that's great for places where we already have good um, sector risk management agency and regulatory cooperation between the public and private sector. Say something like energy or telecom right. um, or the defense industrial base. But for, for the many, many, many other critical infrastructures that are lower common denominator and or lowest common denominator organizations um, where they don't have the proper regulatory role already, that's going to be problematic. And if you think about something, the AI executive order very uh, you know, well uh, uh, identifies the issue of security in the cloud, uh, you know, security among our cloud service providers as a critical element in our management of AI development. But that's also an area for which we have almost no regulatory or even private-public collaborative relationship, right? We don't call cloud right. critical infrastructure. We don't have a regulatory point. We don't have minimum standards for cybersecurity. So the executive order identifies the need for that, identifies the importance of regulation and, and those relationships, and yet doesn't kind of close the loop on that and say, by the way, we need to determine how we're going to work with the cloud. So, you know, a lot of good, but still some challenges. One last thing I want to mention, there's a requirement for a national security memorandum. So I think the bell has not fully tolled for the DOD and intelligence community in their guidance. That Some of that could come in a national security memorandum that the NSC has to get done, I think, over the next 270 days. Um, and and so from your uh, standpoint, right, I mean, there is a couple of, I think it's $200 million, I believe the administration uh, discussed in terms of giving Commerce Department uh, with that capability and that sort of coordinating function, right, because it is seen as integral to uh, American trade. From your standpoint, what are the next steps that have to happen in quick order? Because, you know, as you said, this is a great start. Um, I want to get, by the way, to the, uh, you know, assessment that somehow, the cloud is not critical infrastructure. I want to get to that uh, in a, in a in a minute, um, but but give us your sense yeah. on what are the next immediate steps that have to happen to give this the teeth that yeah. it needs to be as effective as we we need it to be. Because there's there is a sense among some that this is somewhat more reactive than proactive, uh, ultimately. Well, first, you know, I I don't the EO does not task with a sense of urgency. What I mean by that is a lot of these are 180 to 270 to 360 days, right? Which um, is probably accurate. You know, I'm not going to criticize the EO for that, but I'll say that to the degree that you want, um, you know, pace on this, you may not see it. I think one of the big ones, big first things is we need to get uh, funding to, you know, whether it comes through that commerce funding you mentioned, um, which was taking existing programmatics, I think, and applying it to this and get it to right. NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology. They have some big tasking in this about, you know, you know, developing the, the equivalent of NIST 800 series, but, you know, you know, standards and, and, uh, and rule sets for compliance and testing and maybe even red teaming. And so, you know, that money, you know, we need to get that funding to the right place so that they can go off and do it. Now, I really worry about NIST, Lago. I think, Every time there's an executive order or piece of legislation on cybersecurity, it manages to say NIST shall, right? And uh, but you go to the appropriators and, and they don't appear to be moving the you know appropriations number for NIST cybersecurity such that NIST will. So you have a shall will mismatch. You know, you're told to do something, but you're not necessarily resourced to do it. I think neither the administration nor Congress kind of handles this properly and recognizes that that a small group of professionals uh, in, you know, in NIST really do have an outsized role in both cybersecurity and artificial intelligence. Um, 
um, development and, and uh, government role in that over the next three to five years. The Federal Senior Leadership Council uh, has uh, been tasked with determining, right, what's on the list uh, that constitutes critical infrastructure when it comes to cyber. And for some reason, the cloud is not on that. And you mentioned the, some questions about the cloud regarding the executive order on artificial intelligence. Why wouldn't you put something that is fundamental as national infrastructure? I mean, it doesn't get more critical than the cloud, given that almost everything is now in the cloud, whether you're in the U.S. government or anywhere else. Or, you know, yeah. everything so, yeah, is in the cloud now. That's a great question. So what the, the, the whole backstory on this is, is that Congress, when they created the sector risk management agencies, it really started to recognize they needed to step in and help the executive branch for public-private collaboration, said, but still, in the end, this is an inherently executive branch responsibility to determine, you know, what are our critical infrastructure. So they just have, they had tasked a 9002 report to Secretary Mayorkas. He had CISA, uh, Jen Easterly, director says CISA, do that report. It came back to Congress eventually and said, hey, for sure, we need to add space as a critical infrastructure. I think it said that mentioned maybe something in biotechnology and, and said, you need, we need to take a look at this cloud computing. You know, fast forward a little bit, the National Cybersecurity Strategy written by Chris Inglis, released by Kemba Walden, our first two, two national cyber directors, um, uh, uh, the, you know, said, hey, look, um, uh, you know, uh, cloud computing is clearly a national critical infrastructure. Or what they said was it needs to be treated like a critical infrastructure. Um, and, you know, the, the I think the National Security Council went to the FSLC, the Federal Senior Leadership Council. You know, it's a consensus body, a lot of senior leaders from different federal agencies. I, 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 that's a risky move, right, to take important national security decisions to a consensus body. Like the Secretary of Defense doesn't act like a consensus body, right? He makes a decision or she makes a decision and then they, they promulgate it. They get briefs on different iterations, but you don't have to reach like a pure consensus of everybody agreeing because you end up in the lowest common denominator when you do that. Um, and so, you know, uh, I'm not picking on the FSLC. It was the wrong place to go for this. That's where you go to put out information, to receive input, but not to get kind of get yourself in a decision making framework. You should never turn and say, well, this you know very large bureaucratic organization gave me a lowest common denominator answer. I think I'm at the right spot. But it's now with, with NSC, National Security Council, uh, the Resilience Senior Directorate. And, and they really have to make the hard decision saying, look, we understand no federal agency wants to raise their hand and own space or own the cloud computing. And when I say space, I mean space system structure or space structure systems, right? Um, but the NSC's got to make the hard decision and say, yep, it's you, you know, maybe it's Commerce or NASA, you're in charge of space. CISA, you're responsible as SRMA for, uh, for the cloud. And maybe there are subsectors of existing sectors. I'm not, I don't care uh, in that regard. But what's important is that they, they have that relationship so we can build, then co Congress can get to work with legislation to kind of build powers around that federal agency to do those jobs. But by tasking no one, you make it very hard for Congress to do it. I mean, Congress is doing the wrong thing right now in space and for the right reason, because nothing's been done. Congress is starting to pass a law that says space systems shall be a critical infrastructure and CISA Shall, shall be the SRMA. Um, you know, Congress should not do that. That's an inherently executive branch decision. But when the executive branch fails year upon year, and this is a multi, this is a bipartisan, multi-administration failure, you know, that we have an 11-year-old emerging technology document that we're trying to update right now. So very, the short story is cloud's not there yet. One thing I would mention, 
is that uh, Microsoft's Brad Smith recently in a blog post said, point blank, cloud is a critical infrastructure. So we're at that point now where even kind of the, uh, you know, the, the, the cloud service providers recognize that they are one and, and we need the government needs to get on board. And I'm hoping they have time to fix this. They have not signed the new uh, National Security Memorandum replacing PPD 21. Um, so hopefully they'll take some outside guidance and get it fixed. The frustrating element of this, as you said, Mark, is, you know, we've known these were challenges and issues if you go to the early mid 2000s where this is where we were going to go I, I remember secretary lynn uh when he was deputy secretary of the bill lynn when he was deputy secretary of defense was talking about the transition to the cloud uh, and even then he had some opposition and people were you know make asking questions about security uh and and the like right i mean so we've known this is a course of action now for like 15 years. Uh, and it's still astonishing that we have made that designation of it as critical infrastructure and the like. Um, let me take you to the budgetary uh, situation, right? Um, as we record this, uh, hopes are high that the Senate will pass, uh, will follow uh, the House uh, in a funding extension that gets us into next year uh, without the threat of government closures so that folks can have a great Thanksgiving and a great uh, uh, Christmas holiday. Where where is cyber falling in this continuum? Because it is one of the most urgent elements of national security. I'm going to ask you about the Boeing ransomware attack, right? I mean, even though we might be making progress, we, you know, we get reminded all the time uh, about impact and implications. I even want to ask you about the Solar Wind suit, right, which is unprecedented. Uh, but but a little bit along the lines of what the Solarium Commission said, which is companies should be held accountable. Uh, for their actions. But walk, walk us through from a legislative perspective where we stand right now um, and and what's the focus lawmakers need to have um, because at the end yeah. of the day, no bucks, no buck Rogers. So yeah, here we go. So thanks for uh, getting to the probes. And so the money is obviously what matters here. Uh, so two quick thoughts. One, I do think you're uh, like you, I agree there'll be a continuing resolution. I'm then very hopeful that Within two weeks, we'll have an, an Israeli uh, supplemental, and within four weeks, a Ukrainian supplemental. Um, they're both desperately needed, as are you know uh, humanitarian packages and uh, Asia Pacific package. But those two specifically. But on to the cyber appropriations. Um, look, good news is uh, the kind of the uh, the last minute amendment to try to trim CISA's budget twenty five percent was defeated. Uh, with the majority of both Republicans and, and almost all Democrats um, voting against it. Um, and so CISA is going to end up with a budget because the House and Senate were both in around the president's budget number of about $2.9 billion. I think we're going to end up at a good, healthy $2.9 billion, which is what that organization. You know, John Katko, Representative John Katko, who's since retired, used to say CISA is a $5 billion department. And he's right. It's not a $5 billion department today, but five years from now, seven years from now, it should be a $5 billion department. So $3 billion today is about right. And that's almost a doubling over the last six years. So I think they're in the right spot. The one that worries me, Vago, is Department of Justice, FBI. Um, I think the Republicans in the House want to cut that budget you know, between 10 and 15%. I think the Senate wants to keep it where it's at. Um, this is a problem. Um, we cannot afford a cut in the FBI of 10%. Right now, the FBI is taking on new mission in cyber. They should be growing. That their intent was to grow their cyber. I got to tell you, if the if the overall budget for FBI takes a cut, not only will the cyber not grow where it's supposed to grow, uh, it will shrink 
and you know, and will have significant impact on some very uh, important programs. You know that that we value. You know that 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 the, the cyber uh, team values, and uh, this includes the development of cyber assistant legal attaches overseas. Um, you know, a very important program. Um, you know, getting the right cyber talent in their jobs. You know, with the right compensation, because I think cyber. I, I hate to say this, but when when uh, FBI gets a cut. I think their field officers and, and that kind of stuff is going to be protected to the further detriment of cyber. So they could get more than a 10 or 15% cut. So to me, you know, the, the failure to uh, properly grow, you know, fill out the, the FBI cyber uh, personnel roles, the failure to expand the assistant legal attache programs, there'll be impacts on their counterintelligence and computer intrusion expertise development. You know, they have some growth programs there. The bottom line is we will hamper our cyber law enforcement. That's a critical element. You know, when we say we're take, we always say things like we're taking a whole government approach. But what that means is the military, the diplomatic, and basically the law enforcement, right? If we let this slip, if we don't grow it like we are CISA and we are Department of Defense cyber efforts, uh, you know, we're going to weaken the overall American hand. So we really need the Senate Democrat, the, the Senate Democrats and Republicans. There, there. It's a pretty bipartisan bill there, to stand by their guns and keep that. No pun intended. Keep the FBI and DOJ budget, you know, at the president's budget level, and not accept the cuts from the uh, the House Republicans in order to protect, at a minimum, the bureau's cyber uh, capabilities. Let me, uh, you, you mentioned CISA, and we've talked about the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency a couple of times. Um, they also have their new AI strategy on. R- very briefly, is there anything you want to say about that? No, listen, they're, a, you know, they're, a, they're being a good supporting element to the uh, White House's effort. I, I think, you know, they're about right. You know, what they need to do is figure out how AI, one of the most important parts of CISA that we don't talk about, we tend to talk about their outward facing but they have an inward government facing where they set standards and provide services to a good deal of federal agencies, particularly the small and micro, you know, medium, small and micro federal agencies. So part of CISA's role there also is to make sure that they're properly implementing the AI, you know, the value chain of AI, you know, in the federal um, cyber uh, uh, executive, you know, federal cyber um, uh, defense programs for uh, you know 60 or 70 federal agencies. So look, they've got a lot of work on this. In other words, the EO tends to talk about the outward facing part. You know, CISA needs to look at that and the inward facing part. Um, let me uh, take you to uh, the ransomware uh, attack uh, on Boeing. The company has confirmed uh, that it was subjected to a ransomware attack uh, that disclosed some proprietary uh, information. Um, you know, we, we keep seeing this, even though folks are trying to do a much better job across government, right, including uh, the role of the U.S. government uh, in terms of helping blunt this, whether it's on the CISA side of things, whether or not it's on the law enforcement side of it. Um, I, I would note the Cyberspace uh, Solarium Commission had recommended um, that n- national cybercrime reporting apparatus, which uh, you, you just uh, discussed in part as well in terms of the um, uh, investment uh, required what what does this ransomware attack tell us uh, in terms of the progress we're making, and in some cases the progress we're not making? I was looking at this too. It's short. Obviously, when you have a ransomware event, it's a bad news thing. You know, this was done by Lockbit. You know, Lockbit's probably done a hundred million dollars worth of ransom 
um, theft in the last four years. Um, and, you know, this was a lot of proprietary data. You know, I don't blame, you know, don't, I wouldn't, you know, point out Boeing, because I, I believe, you know, this is being reported. I think, I still believe four out of five ransomware cases aren't reported. Um, so a lot of companies are having this problem. Um, it took advantage of a just, you know, discovered uh, flaw in Citrix, um, you know, uh, and uh, so, you know, my, my take is that, you know, they, they weren't quick enough to get both the vulnerability patch out and get it repaired uh, and, and, you know, Boeing ended up a victim. You know, the silver lining to ransomware, in my opinion, is, and this doesn't apply to Boeing as much does to many other, you know, utilities and companies, is the idea that it used to be companies didn't see, many, many utilities in the United States and companies did not see themselves as cyber, at risk for cybersecurity malicious activity. They tend to think that is a problem for the banks. Ransomware has changed right. that. They've, it's monetized data. And so, you know, and here Boeing refused to pay. I think Boeing understood that these were backups. It wasn't impacting their line operations. Uh, and they decided probably they knew Airbus knew what was in these backup data since, you know, I mean, the proprietary uh, things. And, and they decided to not pay the ransom, which is fine. Uh, and then Lockbit released the data two weeks later. Right. Uh, you know, my take. Uh, my take the uh, my take of this is that you know this contributes to the overall the one positive trend, which is companies starting to realize they actually have to invest in cybersecurity. Again, Boeing was invested in cybersecurity. That's not the problem here. The problem here is you know an emerging fault in a cybersecurity program they relied on, and this is you know consistent with um, with SolarWinds and many other recent some of the Microsoft um, Exchange Server and others. Uh, challenges that we've had, which is that um, cybersecurity companies themselves are the ones, you know, having the vulnerability. And then it's right. being exploited and used against larger companies. So, you know, this problem kind of sets both of the cybersecurity providers with the companies, I guess, a little bit. And then, you know, with the fact that this is criminal activity. And let's be clear, Russia harbors, enables, and sometimes directs a number of ransomware as a service providers. It is a, you know, it's not a, you know, a, a cyber criminal gang masquerading as a nation state like North Korea, but it's only a few steps away from that with the with the with Putin's willingness to do this. It's absolutely inappropriate for a nation state to be doing what Russia does. Uh, and they certainly won't extradite anybody in the United States to be held accountable. And uh, and so, you know, Russia needs to be in general needs to be accountable and responsible for these issues as well. How how do we do that? Um, I mean, right. The president made statements. I know that we made some communications uh, with uh, the Russians. We are now involved in a high intensity proxy war with the Russians. Right. I mean, so the Russians are in, not necessarily going to cooperate. And any sanctions regime ends up right. I mean, we, we imposed an unprecedented amount of sanctions on the Russians. It is having an impact, but we you have to keep adjusting those sanctions, right? Yeah. What are the things that need to be done with the Russians to actually get a meaningful change in, in their vector? Well, continue the sanctions. That's good. I'm not, you know, and to the degree that you can pile on and get your, your European partners to do that as well, and your Asian partners to do that as well, that'd be fantastic. It'd be great to get India a little more involved. But I'll set that aside as already happening because of Ukraine. Uniquely to this is I would be I would continue. There's rumors that U.S. Cyber Command conducted persistent engagement for uh, defense operations against 
previous ransomware as a service uh, attempts out of Russia to hold some people accountable. And I think we should absolutely continue to do that against these uh, ransomware as a service providers that operate out of Russia. You know, put friction into their systems, destroy their networks, claw back the money, make life hell for them. We're never going to be able to extradite these guys unless they make a mistake and travel to a different European country. So I think right. we have to hold them accountable in position in Russia. Uh, let me uh, take you uh, very quickly to the Indo-Pacific, uh, which is another uh, area uh, that you obviously keep a close uh, eye on. The president obviously meeting uh, with Xi Jinping uh, in the big Asia-Pacific leaders uh, summit that's happening in San Francisco. First meeting uh, since the two saw each other at Bali. We have a resumption uh, of military-to-military uh, -military links, which is important at a time when uh, tensions are rising. And indeed, I mean, we should just be honest, the Chinese are increasing those tensions with their unprofessional encounters, whether with Canadian uh, ships and aircraft or uh, American ones, or, or indeed Filipino and Japanese ones as well, right? They're, they're an equal opportunity uh, and, and wide-scale uh, uh, violator. Um, and we, we did hear uh, a statement from Chairman Brown uh, about, you know, the, the likelihood for conflict uh, and that, you know, whatever happens over Taiwan may, may actually not be, you know, that China is, is not as likely to use conflict to try to resolve uh, the the reacquisition of Taiwan uh, than other means, um, right? And a lot of discussion about whether that's blockade or anything else. Very, very quickly, bring us up to speed on where we are on Indo-Pacific investment and spending. The administration has really been focused on uh, doing this and making it a priority effort. But almost every single Indo-Pacific commander would also tell you, I, I still don't get the resources and the things I need at the speed I need them, right? I mean, Phil, Phil yeah. I mean, it was Rat Willard that started, I, I need a long-range air-launched anti-ship missile. And, you know, they, they didn't get it until relatively recently. And, and when they are getting it, but they're just not getting it in the numbers they need. Where are we yeah. on the investment that's needed in the Indo-Pacific? Hey, so, you know, this is a big question. What, what I'll say is this, that um, they, abso uh, they absolutely have needed for several years um, you know, between five and 10 billion a year that is unique funding that Indo-Pacific commander says sheer he needs, but is not in the best interest of the service that provides it, right? In other words, right. services will do whatever the Indo-PACOM uh, commander asks for that they're already going to do. What they don't want to do is the things that he wants, she wants, that they weren't going to do. And um, and we got around that in Europe by doing the European Deterrence Initiative, right? Spent four to six billion a year over six years, you know, about 26, 28 billion. And we are in much better shape at deterring Russia from invading NATO states. You know, we have we have the, the equipment for two to three brigade combat teams stowed. We have tons of uh, depl the, uh, deployable asset, um, um, you know, dabs. Um, the bases that, that we want, you know, that are part of agile combat employment, you know, where you can throw them down on any airfield in, in Europe. Um, you know, we need that same kind of investment opportunity for the Indo-PACOM commander in, in uh, the Pacific so that he or she can do things that the services may not be considered a priority, but which the Indo-Pacific commander knows he or she needs, you know, to properly deter China. Um, let me ask you uh, one last uh, question, which is uh, the consistent messaging challenge that the United States uh, has, right? Um, if folks start to amp the rhetoric up right at a senior level or the president says something, then the whole system get, becomes overheated. Uh, and then when they dial it back down, it then cools off too much, right? I mean, we really 
have trouble with nuance uh, and getting the, you know, the whole ecosystem to be at the right place. We tend to have an attention, you know, a deficit of attention on things, uh, on broad things. And then we hyper-focus and we make everything about Taiwan. It's about China. It's not necessarily all about Taiwan. Taiwan is maybe the worst manifestation of it that we have to worry about. Now there are questions about whether or not the chairman you know, when when too cool in, instead of too, how do you interpret what Chairman Brown said and how that plays into the narrative? Because there is a tension within the administration, right? How hot to blow, how cold to blow, and and when to get that balance right where the porridge is not too hot and not too cold. You know, that's a tough balance. First, I think what I'd always say is that the least Aggressive thing I would say is China's my number one priority. China's China's my number one priority. China's the basing threat, right? That's probably the floor of what you should say. So saying anything le- less than that, starting to say that you know China's probably not going to invade, you know, invade things like that anytime soon. That's that's not helpful. I would just say it's my number one priority. It's the pacing threat. You know, if they if they um, operate inappropriately as they have, and you mentioned. And you feel like you have to step up your language a little bit. I confine it to that specific incident, but also to this is a reminder that we need to develop our forces and the forces of our allies and partners to properly deter Chinese behavior. And if we deterrence fails, defeat any inappropriate Chinese action and then back off down to your floor again. You know, what I mean, it's the number one issue and uh, it's the pacing threat. I would operate in that very limited battle space uh, for my strategic messaging. Mark, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Thank you for having me.